1 John 5, starting at verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This week coming up in our Central Focus Bible study group on Tuesday night, we're going to be studying John chapter 6, John's Gospel, written by the same John who wrote this letter that we've been looking at all term. And in John chapter 6, a whole crowd pursue Jesus because they've seen his great miracles. They've seen him feed a crowd of 5,000 with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish, and they want more. And so they pursue him, they cross the lake, they follow Jesus. And when they get to him, Jesus tells them, well, he's not come to fill their stomachs, but he's come to give them life. And he's come to give life to anyone who will believe and depend on his bloody, agonizing death on the cross. And when the crowds hear this, well, many of them walk away. They want life, but they don't want the cross they want life without the cross. 
And that pursuit of life, this pursuit of life, well, it is the goal of humanity. We are pursuing life. We are looking for it in material things or relationships, in achievements, in experiences, philosophies, programs. More and more in Britain today, looking for it in the occult. Our younger generation are being told that uh, what is essentially a lie, that you have to find life by looking inside yourself and working out your own identity. And that is to just place a terrible burden on someone. That your whole life, your flourishing, it depends on you somehow perfectly understanding yourself. Our world wants life, and there are endless ideas of where to find it. But it's a quest for life without the cross. And John wrote this letter to a church who'd seen people leave them, well, because they'd been turning away from the message of Jesus and the message of the cross. Why was that? Was it too offensive? Was it too weak? Was it too challenging? Was it too unpopular in their culture? You'll see on your handouts a picture. Um, it's not my artwork. It's a copy of a piece of graffiti that is etched on the wall on the Palatine Hill in Rome, and it's from around the third century. You can see the picture. There's a man worshipping another man who's on the cross, but the man on the cross has got the head of a donkey. And the inscription reads, Alexamenos worships his God. And it's mocking the cross. Pathetic, it thinks. It's mocking Alexamenos. Too weak or too challenging or too offensive. No room for the cross. And John is writing to reassure this church that whatever those who've left them are claiming and however backwards their culture is making them feel, well, they are the real thing. And we have that key verse, but it's in our passage today, verse 13. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. And in these final verses, John is, if you like, lining up a final piece of testimony to assure us that eternal life really is found in Jesus, the Son of God, crucified at the cross. Testimony tops and tails the letter. So the letter began in chapter 1 with the testimony of John and the eyewitnesses who saw and heard and looked upon and touched Jesus. And they proclaim what they saw so that we might have eternal life. It begins with the apostles. And here it ends with another testimony. And it's the testimony of God himself. Sometimes people say that they'll believe if only God would do something like, I don't know, speak from heaven and tell them it's true. Well, John says he has. John's final assurance is to point us to God's testimony about his son. When God actually spoke from the heavens and it sounded like thunder to declare that there is no life anywhere apart from in the cross, God's testimony loud and clear that life comes through faith in his son, Jesus crucified. And so John is going to unfold that for us in these verses. And he builds his argument in three stages Verse 5, um, verse 4, he says, this is the victory. Verse 11, he said, this is the testimony. And verse uh, 14, this is the confidence. So first, this is the victory, God's testimony concerning his son. 5 verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 
We've been seeing over the weeks that world in John's gospel is a technical term. It's not just referring about the globe in general or just all the people. It means people in opposition to Jesus. It's characterized by everything that's opposed to God the Father. We saw that back in chapter 2, chapter 2.16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. But this world is still seeking life of a kind. And we get used to hearing language, don't we, of overcoming adversity or victory. And it's used to describe this quest for life. When trials and troubles come, we hear people say, life is on hold. The world has an instinct for life, but the world wants life without the cross. But John says, no, our faith brings victory. It's from passing away to eternal life. It's from sin denied and yet still ruling us to sins confessed and cleansed and forgiven. It's from selfishness and pride to love experienced and expressed. It's from the shocking language we saw in chapter 3 of being children of the devil to the wonderful reality of being children of God, the family of light and love. Our faith brings fullness of life And so John says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And he's going to go on to say, it's Jesus, the Son of God, crucified. There's no life without the cross. God has testified to it. And that's where he goes in verse 6 through to verse 10. Verse 6, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood, And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Now, we might be hearing that and thinking, well, there's a lot going on in that verse. What is happening there? I was chatting to Gwilym earlier on in the week, and he pointed out, don't forget verse 9. So let's not forget verse 9. Let's read on 7, 8, and 9. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these agree. Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. This is the testimony of God that he's borne concerning his son, and this is the water, the blood, and the spirit. That is the testimony of God. Three independent testimonies of God himself. Well, what are they? Well, I think to work this out, we want to start asking the question, well, how is John using terms like that? Water, blood, spirit. Well, water, as I've looked at it, doesn't come up any other time in 1 John, I don't think. But it does come up a lot in John's gospel. And there's a moment in John's gospel when water and the testimony of God come right together. The baptism of Jesus. In John's gospel, John the Baptist says, he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John the Baptist says, I've seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, at that same moment, they record the words of God coming from heaven as his Spirit descends on his Son to say, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. God's testimony by the water that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, what about the blood? 
Well, the blood does come up in 1 John. It comes up back in chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus, God's son, shed on the cross to cleanse us from sin. And then in John 12, another moment, and God spoke from heaven. Jesus is ready to go to the cross, and he says, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And John records, then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And John records that the crowd who stood there heard it and said that it had thundered. God's testimony. Jesus is the Son of God who came to die. And it would be really worth reading on in John chapter 12. Perhaps do that this afternoon, just take 10 minutes and read it through. Because all around that moment where God speaks and confirms Jesus, the Christ, has come to die. Well, Jesus is describing his death as a death that brings life. He describes it in terms of a seed that falls to the ground and dies. And from it, new life bursts forth. And then he describes his death as a death that defeats the devil, that wins victory. It's full of all the themes that John is using in his letter here. So God's testimony in the water. God's testimony in the blood. Our faith is in Jesus, the Son of God, crucified. Jesus came not by water only, but by water and the blood. And God confirms this by sending his spirit. That's what we had read in our first reading earlier from John 16, as Jesus taught that when he departed having accomplished his work at the cross, well then the Spirit would be sent from the Father by the Son to bring this truth to the world. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so the Spirit has come, the third testimony of God, that life is in his Son crucified. The Spirit sent when the work is accomplished. And so we have God's testimony concluding this letter. Three witnesses that life is in Jesus, the Son of God, crucified. And he really underlines there really is no life without the cross. Did you notice it in verse 6? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Not by the water only, John is saying you can't have a water-only Jesus, a Jesus without the cross. Because at his baptism, he was declared king, he was declared son of God. But in John chapter 6, as the crowds come and they want more food, well, they're so impressed, they actually want to make Jesus king. Love the bread, Jesus. Would you be our king, please? Well, they wanted him to fit their agenda. Maybe help them out politically, Perhaps just feed their faces. But Jesus, when he goes on to say, you need my death to have life, well, that's when they walk away. And we do see it in the world, don't we? A water-only Jesus is sort of acceptable. In the workplace, well, we love the diligence of the Christians, but we're not very keen on their Easter event or the Christmas event. Or in the school, we can see how the Christian students are really respectful But please don't speak about him to other students. 
I was chatting to someone earlier who said that in their secondary school Christian union, the teacher came at the start of the term to say, it is so wonderful that you Christians can get together and tidy up the school, pick up the litter, and make things a nicer place. And they were just saying that's what they wanted them to do. They didn't want them to be proclaiming the cross. John says, life is in the son who died on the cross. You can't have a water-only Jesus. The water and the blood. And in fact, even the water speaks of the cross as well. Because in John's gospel, his baptism identifies him as the Lamb of God, who, God, who takes away the sins of the world. And so John says, be confident in this testimony. Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. The logic simple. If you had three witnesses in an independent human court, well, you'd believe what they were saying. How much more if they're God's testimony? In preparing this week, I thought I'd just sort of clarify that, test that out. I emailed one of the barristers in our church family and and said, well, how would you feel if you had three independent witnesses when you were in court? Well, this barrister does civil cases, he said. I can't think of the last time I had a case with three independent witnesses. If there are that many witnesses, the case simply won't go to trial. The other side will pay up as defeat would be almost inevitable. And then he said if it was the criminal context, three witnesses, that's basically home and dry. God's testimony assures us we really are right to hold fast to Jesus, the Son of God, crucified. Life is in Jesus Christ crucified. This is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. John has got a slightly shocking word for us here. It's a bit of a sting in the tail because here the water, the blood and the spirit, well, they become witnesses for the prosecution. Because to reject God's testimony about his son is not a neutral position. It's to say that when he spoke, when the crowds heard, he lied. I asked for the barrister's view on this too. How would it go down in court to call an independent witness a liar? His response, accusing a genuinely independent witness of being a liar is a rookie mistake. The judge will absolutely hate it. To pursue life without the cross is to call the creator God a liar. And he is justly indignant. And we remain facing his judgment. And so John says, don't be unsettled by a world that resists the cross or mocks the cross or those who walk away from the cross. We have the testimony of God. A bit further on from where this picture on the handouts is found on that wall in Rome, there's an inscription on another wall. And this inscription just reads, Alex Eminos is faithful. Was it written by him? Was it written by another Christian who knew him? Maybe, was it written centuries later? Who knows? But perhaps they're the words of someone who in unsettling times had confidence in eternal life, knowing that life is found by faith in God's Son, crucified. This is the victory, God's testimony concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, God's gift of life in his Son, 
That's where verse 11 takes us. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Last Sunday at our equipped session, we were thinking about answering questions that people might ask when they they know we're a Christian and uh, thinking about ways we can answer them in ways that genuinely help them to engage with who Jesus is. And Paul, who is leading the session, says, we do that because actually the answer to every question ultimately really is Jesus. As the world pursues life in all kinds of places, John says, remember the testimony of God. You don't even need to pursue life in all kinds of places. God has given you life. It's a gift held out to us, and it's given uniquely in his Son. For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It is in the Son alone. Verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Perhaps you're looking in on Christian things this morning. Perhaps you're undecided what you really think about it or where you stand. John is clarifying the issue. The question is, will you put your trust in Jesus, the Son, who shed his blood on the cross that your sin might be forgiven so that you might have eternal life? John wants to reassure us that is where life is found. And he wants to reassure his readers, well, remain in the Son, abide Whatever unsettling things are happening around you, don't leave Jesus. If you have him, you have life. And by this point in the letter, it's as if John's saying, and you know that is the case. He said the apostles have testified. God himself has testified. And you've confessed your sin and you're forgiven and you're in the family of light and love. And you can see God's love reaching its goal as you love one another. And so he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this eternal life begins now, and it goes on forever, and it is to enjoy a truly wonderful relationship with God, the relationship we were made for. And this is our third point. This is the confidence, fellowship with God, secured by the Son. Verse 14, this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. What John's describing here is a picture of eternal life. It's a picture of relational confidence before God with the Father and the Son in fellowship. And it's the confidence to come to the Father and to ask and to know that he hears. And this is no arrogant position because this confidence rests on humble dependence on Jesus and his death on the cross. We can approach God who is light and we can enjoy this great privilege to ask, this privilege of prayer. And this picture is a real picture of unity. It's prayer that's according to God's will. Some of us might have employees in our workplaces, and they're the kind of employees that just get it. They come along and they say to you things like, "Um, would you like me to do X and Y, and I've already done Z for you. And you just think, brilliant. That's just what we needed. And some of you are those employees, and you're like that because you've taken the time to understand the business. 
and your role and the needs of your boss and their preferences. Well, there's just something of that here, but far greater. As we get to know God through his word, well, we'll more and more enjoy praying to him and participating in all he's doing, asking him all kinds of things according to his will. And it does seem we can pray anything. I don't think this is just saying, well, you have to just pray a flat, okay, God, your will be done today. No, it's asking in relation to all the specifics of life, shaped by his word, shaped by his love. Think of the Lord's Prayer we prayed earlier, the scope of the things that are prayed even in that prayer, according to God's will. But I think specifically here, John is is giving us that confidence, setting up and reminding us of our confidence before God to encourage us to confidently ask God to keep each other in eternal life. Back in John chapter 6, Jesus speaks of the need to depend on his death and he says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but rate it up on the last day. And so John is calling us to pray to the Father that through the Son he would do just that in our brothers and sisters. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Well, as we hear this, we might be asking, well, what then is sin that does not lead to death? What on earth does that mean? Well, this phrase comes at the end of the letter, and so we'd be right to think, well, what's John said about sin previously in the letter? And he's been showing us that God's children are not those who are content with sin. They're those who confess their sin. Remember chapter 1, verse 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's family admit and confess their sin in grateful, confident dependence on the cross. Lit up, fessed up, cleaned up. So sin that does not lead to death is sin confessed in dependence on Jesus' death in our place. So John says, when we see a brother or a sister battling with sin... Or we see a brother or a sister slipping into patterns of sin. Well, we are to ask the Lord to keep them in life. We are to ask him to keep them confessing, to keep them depending on the cross. It's if you like, we're praying to God that he would keep us from deception. He would keep us from hardening to sin in our lives and becoming unrepentant. He would keep us taking sin seriously, which means taking it to the cross frequently. We are interceding for one another, confidently asking the Lord to keep us in life, and he will hear us. John 6 again, Jesus says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. But what about this sin that leads to death then? There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Well, I think really what John's doing there is just clarifying to emphasize the first point. The main point is to confidently pray for one another because we are in fellowship with the Father. We can pray according to his will. But here John emphasizes it's a prayer really for the family. 
and not just for the world. If the sin that does not lead to death is sin confessed in dependence on Jesus, well, the sin that leads to death is sin that's denied, not confessed. And Jesus is opposed and the cross is refused. And that's the behavior of the departed. Chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so John says, well, you pray differently for them. It's not prohibited, but it's not the same family obligation. And it's not the same prayer. It's not a prayer to God to keep them in life because they're rejecting life. Instead, it will be a prayer that they would repent and turn back to Jesus. John's big encouragement here is to pray for one another when we sin so that God will keep us in life. And because of the cross, we know we have access to pray with confidence and he'll hear us. And because of the cross, we pray confidently because we know Jesus will keep his people. And that's where we land in this letter with these three we know statements. Verse 18, we know. Verse 19, we know. Verse 20, we know. And verse 18 underlines that confidence we have, the protection of Jesus. We are absolutely safe. We are the real thing, and Jesus protects us by his blood shed for us. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not, trust him, does not touch him. God's family confess their sin in dependence on the cross, and that is the safest thing we can ever do. Did you notice God's family here are described as born of God? And also so is Jesus. Those who have been born of God, everyone who's been born of God, but he who was born of God. It's the word begotten. It's not that we're now part of the Trinity or have become God, but it is an amazing statement of the closeness and the privilege of being in God's family. And as God's family were protected by his son, our big brother, from the attacks of the evil one. On a morning when we remember many who gave their lives to protect us, the reality for the Christian is God's Son has come by water and blood to protect us eternally from the attacks of the evil one. Whatever the unsettling times, whatever the persecution, whatever the battle with sin, hold on to the cross, depend on the cross. Protection is in the cross. The words of our first hymn this morning, the soul that on Jesus had leaned for repose, I cannot, I, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. And so we know we have victory. Verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John is so stark, isn't he? There are only two families in the world. We are either in the power of the evil one or in the family of God. And we know we're in the family of God and we know it with deep and thankful confidence because we believe in the name of his son, Jesus, the son of God. Verse 20, we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we might know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And so John concludes, little children, keep yourselves from idols. John says, don't be deceived by the claims of the departed. They were just the words of idols. 
They're frauds. Because idols, well, they promise life in material things, relationships, achievements, experiences, philosophies. But they claim to offer life, and they offer life without the cross. And when we pull down their mask, they're the world. And the world lies in the power of the evil one. And the world is passing away. And John says, however unsettling the times may be, remain in the apostles' teaching, remain in the testimony of God, remain in the family of light and love, remain in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified. 5 verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have testified that life is found by faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us. Please keep us holding fast to him, holding fast to the cross, never shifting from it. And please help us to be praying for one another that we might remain in life. And we pray this with deep thanksgiving for your gift of life to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.